All right. Hopefully, I won't uh, <clears throat> forget anything else, names or passages of Scripture. <clears throat> um, is that a sign of age? I would like to say it's a sign of a brain so full of information it's hard to sort it all out quickly, but <clears throat> I'm afraid that's not the case. All right, so Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, <clears throat> just one verse, and we are still in our series on Satan's schemes, and so we'll make an application of this verse to, to that theme here in a moment. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing that one of the things that we ought to most admire in God is how he takes what men mean for evil and turns it to the good or brings good out of it. Um, one of the great examples of this in Scripture is the treachery of Joseph's brothers that we read about in the book of Genesis. They were jealous and envious of him to the point that they seriously contemplated putting him to death, uh, but they ended up selling him into slavery. And many years later, as they themselves went into Egypt to buy grain for their households because of the famine that was in the land of Canaan, they were surprised to learn that this brother whom they sold into slavery so many years ago had risen to a place of great prominence in Egypt. They were surprised to learn this, and they were dismayed by it uh, because now they see that their brother, whom they had so cruelly treated, was in a position where he could easily exact his vengeance against them. And so they were greatly afraid. But Joseph told them not to be afraid. He said, God sent me before you to preserve life. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So in this act, tremendous act of great injustice that was a, a terrible thing for Joseph to have to endure, God, God brought great good out of it. And when you think about it, what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ is an even greater example of this, how God can take what man intends for evil and use it for good. It was a much greater evil that was done to our Lord than was done to Joseph and a much greater good that God brought out of it, nothing less than the redemption of the world. And so I say again, one of the things that we ought to admire most in God is his habit of taking what man intends for evil and using it instead for good. On the other hand, one of the things that we should most lament about man is his habit of doing just the opposite, of taking what God intends for good and using it for evil. In the book of the prophet Ezekiel, we find the Lord indicting Israel for doing just this. The passage uses a familiar motif in the Old Testament prophets, which is that of Israel as God's wife. They are in covenant union together. God proposes to Israel in the wilderness. They enter into covenant together. And from that point forward, Israel's relationship to God is frequently pictured in Scripture as a husband-wife relationship. And when Israel goes astray and begins to worship false gods and idols, uh, the indictment that God brings is that this is an act of unfaithfulness, infidelity, adultery. And the, passages, or the passage in Ezekiel chapter 16 at some point is very um, uh, too graphic really even to read in, uh, in a congregation with children. But this portion of it, notice what it says here. God speaking to his people Israel, his wife, 
who has been unfaithful. He says, you also took your beautiful jewels, my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, idols, and with them you played the whore. You were unfaithful in your acts of idolatry. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them, also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, and you set these before them, your idols, for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? Now, notice what he says here. He says, you took all of these things, all of these good things that I have given you, the jewels I've given you, the gold and the silver that I've given you, the embroidered cloth that I've given you, the oil, the bread, the wine, the incense, and all of these good things that I have given you, you have used for purposes of evil. You've dedicated them to your idols. And not only this, but the best gifts that I've given to you, your sons and your daughters, you have sacrificed to your idols. God takes what men mean for evil and turns it to the good, and man takes what God means for good and uses it for evil. And our opening passage says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. But the same thing can be said of those who use good for evil. Woe to them who do this. But this is the devil's strategy. This is what he seeks to do with us, to lead us, to tempt us, to take God's good gifts that he has given us and then turn them uh, to evil, to make a sinful purpose of them or sinful use of them. And when we remember that the devil is only a creature living in a world that God has made, it's easy to understand why he should use this strategy, because that's all he's got. He's not a creator. He's not an originator. He can't, of his own accord, bring things into existence to tempt us with those things. He can only take what he finds ready at hand, what God has created, and somehow use these as uh, points of seduction for us to turn us away uh, from God, to use them for an evil purpose. And this is what he did with Adam and Eve. He used the tree that God had made for good uh, to tempt Adam and Eve to do evil. So again, my point is, is that Satan is not an originator or creator. He is a corrupter, a perverter, a destroyer. That's all he has to take the good things that God has given to us and tempt us to make a bad use of them. Remember, everything that God has made is good. Sometimes people seek to find evil in things, but that's really to call into question the goodness of God and his creation. Right, as if the things themselves are evil, but it's a bad purpose or a bad use that is made of a good thing that God created. Remember that every act of creation that is mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, after each act, it says God looked at what he had made that day, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. We come to the sixth day, God looked over everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything that comes forth from the hand of God is good. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is, to be re- if it is received with thanksgiving. Everything that God has created is good. Sometimes, some, in some portions of history in the church and at some segments of the church today, 
people kind of look down at creation as if somehow there's something inherently wrong with the created order. We're to be spiritually minded and not to think so much about the world. Well, that's true only if we're using the word world in uh, antithesis to God, like uh, sometimes uh, scripture talks about the ways of the world. If we're using the, world that, or using the word world that way, then yes, we shouldn't be worldly-minded, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about the world that God has made and cherish it as something that is good in and of itself. Everything that God makes is good. And um, it's only when we make an evil purpose of these good gifts uh, that we find ourselves sinning. Remember that Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and that's what the devil does. He comes and he tempts us with things that God has given us for good and seeks to make us use an evil, make an evil purpose of them. All right, so the devil will lead us to do this with any and every good gift that God has given to us to make it something sinful. Think of how he does this with something as simple and necessary as food. Right? Something we all take for granted. If you want to have proof of God's goodness and the goodness of his creator, created order, look no further than your own taste buds. Right? We've mentioned this before. And I think that we ought to take a serious look at this. Right? God created us with an inherent need to eat. We need to eat to nourish our bodies. So we might have health and strength to fulfill the calling that God has given to us. And this is a sacred duty that we have to preserve the health of our body as much as lies within us, and that includes taking our daily nourishment. But God made this daily task supremely enjoyable, right, by giving us taste buds, right? Who doesn't look forward to mealtime, right? I mean, we all love to eat, and we all love to eat things that are especially uh, delicious uh, to us. But yet this good gift of God can be abused, Right? We can eat to the point of uh, becoming gluttons. Right? We, can, we can be immoderate in our use of food. We can eat the wrong kinds of food or not have a properly balanced diet, and it can cause all kinds of health problems. Right? Something that God has created for good can be abused in a way that is both sinful and self-destructive. Eating is a joy and a pleasure. And Scripture teaches us that we ought to give God thanks for our food. But again, if we consistently overindulge uh, then we make a bad use of God's good gift. Sleep is also a wonderful divine gift for which we should be thankful. He gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 127, verse 2. It is God who gives us a good night's rest. God promises that when our ways please him, that our sleep will be sweet. And after a full day's work, a good night's rest is very sweetly refreshing, isn't it? But as with an overindulgence in food, so an overindulgence in sleep or just idleness in general is both sinful and foolish. Solomon says in Proverbs 6, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Right? We oftentimes are tempted to be idle when we should be working, to be sleeping when we need to be active. That doesn't mean that sleep is a bad thing. It is a good thing, but it can be used to a bad purpose. And what should we say about the pleasures of the marriage bed? Delightful, 
Yes. The scriptures speak of this in a variety of ways. Solomon says in Proverbs 5, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Right? God is not the prude that some people make him out to be. I mean, the Song of Solomon is proof enough of that. However, to seek the pleasures of the marriage relationship outside the bounds of marriage is an abuse of God's gift. And like all abuses of his gift, gifts is both sinful and foolish. Another example. Scripture presents wine as a good gift given by our divine benefactor. But sinners and fools abuse this gift because they are sinners and fools. Scripture, of course, prohibits and condemns this abuse in no uncertain terms and does so so many times it's too numerous to mention. Solomon says, Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. But how often do people shamelessly abuse these good gifts and turn them to an evil use? Again, it's not the thing itself, it's the misuse of the thing. And this is the way with every good and perfect gift that comes down from our Father, the Father of lights. There's no good thing that the devil is unwilling to corrupt and distort. And no good thing that fallen human beings aren't unwilling to be uh, corrupted by in their evil use of them. Think of how the devil corrupts music, for instance. Right? What a gift music is. I mean, we all love music. Some of, some of you are gifted in creating music, playing music, singing, playing an instrument. I wish I had a gift like that. But I enjoy your gifts um, and, and others who, whom God has gifted in this way. It is a tremendous gift. And yet, consider also how terribly the devil corrupts music and how willing we are uh, to, to enjoy that corrupted form of music. Music has a way of moving us to the very core of our being in a way that few other things can do. When it's moving us in a Godward direction because its lyrics are true and God-glorifying and its melody and instrumentation are beautiful, it can be a very great blessing, right? We've all experienced it where we're listening to some, some music. It may be specifically, quote-unquote, religious in nature, and it moves the soul to reach out to God, and uh, it's very profound, and we have a very meaningful experience with God uh, occasioned by the music that draws our soul out to him. Or it might be a beautiful, God-glorifying expression of love between a husband and wife. And it deepens that sense of affection and commitment to our own spouse. You know, music can have a very profound and powerful effect for good. But as you know, it can have just the opposite effect as well. The gift of music is corrupted when the music itself is powerful or moving or beautiful, but the message of the lyrics is sinful. A 17th century Scottish writer and politician by the name of Andrew Fletcher once said, I care not who writes a nation's laws so long as I can write its songs. <laughs> now, this was a politician. And he said, I would rather have the power to write up my nation's songs than to write its laws. Why? Because... Right, politics is downstream from culture, right? The, the, the political situation will improve if the cultural situation is good. If, if the songs and other forms of, of uh, well, I don't know what kind of mass media they had in the 17th century, but given our day, if the mass media and social media were simply expressions of godliness, then the politi political situation would take care of itself, right? 
I care not who writes the nation's laws so, so long as I get to write the nation's songs. Well, the devil knows the power of music for good and evil, and he would like nothing more than to discourage us from listening to wholesome music, music that elevates the soul, and he would rather get you to listen to music that leads you down sinful and self-destructive paths. And the same is true with movies, right? So much uh, power and influence is exerted by Hollywood through the movies that it makes. And most of those movies are not moving the culture in a direction that is uh, pleasing to God. But again, stories can be told in such a way through film that can have a very profound effect upon us, again, either for good or for evil. Pray that God will raise up... um, movie makers, producers, actors that will take their call as uh, actors or as artists in a way that uh, they take it seriously as a divine calling and make movies that are God-glorifying. They don't always necessarily have to be specifically religiously themed in the storyline, but whatever the storyline, let the resolution of the story be such that it's in accordance with God's purposes and plans and will for men. One of the most distressing things, I think, about the devil's tactics is that he even seeks to tempt us to abuse God's attributes, right? The best thing of all, the God himself and his attributes can be abused. How does he do this? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. He will tempt people who have a tender and sensitive conscience to despair of ever finding forgiveness from God. He will tempt people who have a tender and sensitive conscience to despair of ever finding forgiveness from God because they will focus on his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, the determination that is expressed in Scripture that the evildoer will find themselves in judgment on the last day. And because of the tenderness of their conscience, to the degree that the devil can divert their attention from the rest of Scripture, he'll cause them to focus on only those passages that that magnify the justice of God. And they'll think, my sins are so great, how can God ever forgive me? He'll suggest that those passages that laud his mercy for some reason don't apply to them. And as a pastor, um, it's always a... A tender moment we can reassure people that, yes, these passages that speak of the mercy of God apply to you as much as they apply to anyone else. And I like to point such people to the example of Saul of Tarsus, uh, who was guilty of terrible things against God's people, even to the point of consenting to the murder uh, of God's people. And yet Paul says, God was patient with me and showed me mercy so that in me people might have an example of the Lord's patience and mercy. He said, I've been the foremost of sinners in the things that I have done, but look, God has had mercy on me. You think of Mary Magdalene also, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons, and yet one might say that she was the closest of all of Jesus, even above the 12. She was closest to knowing the heart of Christ, and she was very dear in his affection. He forgave her. What of you done that would compare to either of those two people. Yes, God is very merciful. Don't let the devil tempt you to think that because God is also just that he will not forgive you when you look to him for mercy. I think the greater problem, however, is that the devil tempts us to abuse God's grace. 
The devil attempts us to abuse God's grace. He seeks to turn the grace of God into a license to sin. This is a perennial problem. Uh, Peter even mentions this in his second letter, Second Peter chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 18, 2 Peter 3. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your, uh, through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all, these, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see what Peter is saying here. He's counteracting or he's addressing a common um, scoff, a common um, objection to the Christian teaching in these early days. Look, you got you Christians are talking about God coming in judgment. This Jesus whom you've talked about, who has died and risen again and is going to come again in a day of judgment, it hasn't happened. And by the time Peter is writing this, several decades have passed, and they're saying it hasn't happened, it hasn't happened, it never will happen. And Peter's saying, look, God has threatened judgment in the past, and he has fulfilled his word. In the days of Noah, God threatened judgment. And though he was patient with people, the day of, of judgment finally came. He says in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Right? The, the patience of the Lord is what causes him to delay the judgment. He is being patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heaven, heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some things, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and, and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, the thought in this passage is that God hasn't brought judgment swiftly, uh, or at least the objection of, of those who were finding fault, those who were scoffing, is if the Lord hasn't brought judgment swiftly, he's not going to bring judgment at all. And this emboldens people oftentimes to sin. Uh, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart, of the, children, the heart of children of men is fully set to do evil. Now, here he's talking about a courtroom situation. A man is brought before the court. Um, he is judged to be guilty, and the sentence, for whatever reason, is either not carried out or the sentence is not carried out quickly, and there's a general impression among the people that justice will never be done. The sentence will never be executed. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. But what Solomon says there about the courtroom is also true in God's own dealings with us, right? God doesn't execute the sentence against us speedily, right? We see sinners who live long lives, and we think, God, why do you let them live so long? I think of the atheist Bertrand Russell, who was so prominent throughout the 20th century. He lived to be 98 years old. And he scoffed at God, and he, um, he took every opportunity he could to argue with people about the existence of God. He was a, a wickedly immoral man um, by his own confession, not above seducing the wives of his friends if he spent the night at their house um, seeking to seduce. I mean, he was an ungodly man, and he lived to be 98 years old. And I used to think, well, God, why did you let him have such a long life? Why didn't you take him out? because he had such a a pervasively evil influence in intellectual circles that filtered down to the rest of the culture throughout the 20th century. Why did God let him live so long? God was giving him time to repent, giving him time. He's being patient with him. He's being kind to him by giving him an opportunity to repent. He never did repent. He died in his atheistic beliefs, but God was being patient. But you see, people... Onlookers will look at a man like Bertrand Russell and others who shake their fist at God and they say, God hasn't struck them down. So if judgment hasn't come yet, it never will come. The devil is tempting us to abuse God's patience, to abuse his mercy, to abuse his grace, to think that God will never bring judgment. And this is a very dangerous place to be if we think that this is true. Uh, The psalmist speaks about this in Psalm 50. Verses 16 through 21. Psalm 50, beginning at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenants on your lips? For you hate discipline. And you cast my word behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. 
But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Again, the same theme. You have done all of these things, and I've remained silent. I haven't reached out. I haven't thumped you on the head with my finger. I haven't stricken you with any obvious form of of disease or uh, brought any blight on your crops or brought any kind of calamity upon you. And you thought, as long as things are going well, I must stand approved of God. He must not take exception to the way in which I'm living. You thought I was like you, God says. You thought wrong. Now I rebuke you. Now he's ready to bring judgment. The last passage on this theme, and we'll close with this, is Romans chapter 2. And Paul really brings it uh, out very vividly in this passage. Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Still, Still hear pages rustling, so I'll wait just a moment. Paul says, do you think, I'm sorry, do you uh, presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, again, think about this. Look at the attributes that he's describing here, the riches of God's kindness. And how does he describe this kindness as manifesting itself? By being forbearing and patient with them. And it's interesting that these two attributes frequently go together. Um, Kindness and patience, or patience and kindness. They appear together in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, and in other places in Paul's writings. And the idea is that we be patient when we're talking about virtues that we are to express, that we are patient when other people do us wrong, and, and we do not strike back and retaliate, much like we were talking about earlier in our service today. And this is what God is doing with people. He says, do you think lightly or do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness and being patient with you is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, he's saying, look, if this is your attitude, you are presuming upon God's kindness here to continue in sin, thinking that because he hasn't exacted judgment upon me yet, he will never do so. See, the devil tries to get us to misuse God's attributes, whether it's to cause us to despair of ever finding mercy or whether it is to presume upon his mercy that God will never bring judgment. Grace is a license to sin. Grace is an excuse to continue on doing whatever I wish to do, regardless of what I know to be the case and what God has testified elsewhere in Scripture. People frequently delude themselves in this way, and they are helped in this delusion by the devil himself. We need to be aware of it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you that you have given us